0: In the beginning of 2021, the former President of the United States, Donald Trump, had several of his social media channels shut down. It was in response to his role in provoking a group of protesters to storm Congress in Washington, D.C. No matter what you think of Twitter and Facebook's decision to shut him down, it reveals something significant about tech giants—just how much power they hold. And you don't have to be president to feel the influence of big tech. Because of their status as gatekeepers in this digital age, these giants are able to gather enormous amounts of information from us. This data is often sold and distributed for commercial purposes. And it's well known that the data about our personal lives and behavior is sometimes misused for hate campaigns, fake news, and general disinformation. The Nordic countries know all too well about the power struggle of our digital age. This region is the most digitalized in the world, and has some of the longest-running traditions of democracy. In this episode, we'll meet a fighter from the online battlefields of Finland, and hear the views of Margrethe Vestea and Shoshana Zuboff, two well-known voices in this debate. Together, we'll examine three major questions of our time. What does the power held by big tech mean for our democratic societies? What should be the responsibilities of digital gatekeepers? And do you and I actually have any power to influence these giants? I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast.
1: These companies are creating unprecedented concentrations, not just concentrations of economic power, but of knowledge. And that kind of vast knowledge that makes behavior transparent, essentially on a
0: global scale, also produces vast power. Shoshana Zuboff is the author of the international best-selling book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and professor emerita at Harvard Business School. At this level,
1: what we see is a confrontation with principles of human autonomy, principles of individual decision rights, principles of individual sovereignty, without which democracy is unimaginable. So we have this very intimate connection with the challenge
0: to democracy.
2: Right now, because of, in particular, big tech, we're being more and more polarized.
0: EU Commissioner Margrethe Wester is known for wrestling with big tech giants like Google and Amazon. She has no doubt about what's at stake.
2: The combination of sort of the, the tech business model and, uh, and human behavior uh, is something that basically leaves us with a privatized reality that becomes more and more entrenched because of the dynamics of hate speech, of extremism, of uh, bots, uh, of what have you. And this is a very fundamental problem in democracy because the first step in every democracy is that we kind of agree on the society that we live in. This is our reality. In variations, yes, but this is our reality. And these are the problems that we think we have in common. And then we can have very opposing views as to how to solve it, but we will discuss how to find a solution. And if we end up in a situation where we cannot even agree on what is the society that we live in, then things start falling apart. Because the the political ads that I see may not be the same as you see. Public space is breaking down.
0: Both Margarete Wester and Shoshana Zuvov will soon elaborate on this challenge. But let's go to one of the countries that have learned the consequences of surveillance capitalism the hard way. Finland. This Nordic country has been struggling with a high degree of hate speech and fake news online. Hanna Aho is the president of the Finnish Union of Journalists. Surveillance
3: capitalism is such a big thing and it raises a fear because you don't actually know what's been collected, you don't know how you've been monitored, you don't know how this data is being used, you don't know who it's being sold. And this is so, so important thing because it has straight effects on our democracy. If the journalists are being harassed and, and they don't write, For example, Russia. It has straight effect on our democracy. And uh, if people get misinformation, even disinformation, it has straight impacts
0: on our democracy. Later, we'll hear more about the Finnish experience in this increasingly digital age. But first, let's have Shoshana Zuboff's diagnosis of the problem.
1: What we are witnessing is what I'm calling an epistemic coup. That means a revolution in the ownership and concentration of knowledge. This epistemic coup is proceeding in three stages. The first stage is epistemic inequality. That is defined as the growing gap between what I can know and what can be known about me. The second stage is epistemic chaos. Recently, we've been deeply focused on the challenges of epistemic chaos. We're in the midst of this second stage unfolding right now. Um and epistemic chaos is the condition in which information is separated from any concept or principles of truth value. And we're at a moment as we're building our new information civilization for the twenty-first century. We're at a moment where, as a result of the specific economic imperatives of surveillance capitalism, the deluge of information that saturates our lives on a daily basis has been separated from any principles of truth. And it's worthwhile to note... Epistemic chaos has, has many faces, the denial of reality, disinformation, misinformation, hate speech, incitements to violence, the inability to separate what is false from what is true. And finally, the third stage of the epistemic coup is what I call epistemic dominance. And here we see that the surveillance capitalist logic and the tech companies and apps and ecosystems that employ it, the kind of power that they are accruing is not only economic power. It's not restricted to the economic domain, and it cannot be restricted to the economic domain for one simple reason, and that is that its raw material is human experience. And because it's raw material as human experience, its consequences, its effects will always engage all of humanity and all of society and all of democracy. So what we see right now is not only the, the surveillance capitalists vying for control and power to further their economic aims, but they are also increasingly in competition with democratic governments for which principles will define our social order. And we are seeing them increasingly going head to head with elected officials, with democratic governments, with the values and principles of democracy to try and assert their worldview and their version of the future of this digital century over the views and visions and principles of democracies.
0: If there's anyone with experience confronting tech giants, it's Margrethe Wester. And she and the European Commission struck back in 2020 with two new initiatives. One is the Digital Markets Act, This will impose new obligations on big tech to ensure that their platforms don't stop other companies from competing for users. The other is the Digital Services Act, requiring online platforms to do more to limit the spread of illegal content and goods. According to Margrethe Wester, the tech giants bear a huge responsibility because of their size and power.
2: We just tabled two proposals uh, one is about how to deliver services. That basically is applicable to everyone uh, who's online. But with, with size comes bigger responsibility. If you're just a small guy with a web page and you're selling a few things, you know, you will not feel this. But if you're the big guy, well, then uh, transparency, um, control, uh, responsibility is sort of key in order to make sure that what we have agreed is illegal in our offline world is also illegal and there's a consequence to that in our online world. And the second thing is, in in sort of the Digital Markets Act, is to say, if you are a gatekeeper, and, and it's a very good metaphor, because this is literally what happened. It's like a gatekeeper, it's like a doorman who says, behind this door, behind this gate, I decide. And I'm the one to decide if you are let in or not. And this is why we have said, well, within objective criteria, we can designate what is a gatekeeper, because obviously it's someone who's big, who plays this very special role, and who has an entrenched position in doing so. We basically say, well, these are the things that you must do, and these are the things that you cannot do. For instance, you cannot take other people's data and use them against them. Uh, You must provide for interoperability so that others can be there and challenge you. If you start a new service and someone competes against you, you have to provide them with the ability actually to do the same thing. For instance, you cannot disable a payment sort of part of your hardware and then leave it only to you. You have to provide it to other payment uh, services as well. So in a number of places, sort of basically challenging this, I'm so big now that I can make every decision because these decisions, they do not cater for fairness in every respect. And we know that not from one, not from two, but from three Google cases. We know that from the first Amazon case. Now we have a second one. We're investigating a third one. We have three Apple cases already. So this is not something that we take out of thin air It's not conspiracy. It is something that we can see and prove as we think it in the marketplace.
0: Much of Magritte Wester's fight is happening in digital markets. This makes a lot of sense because in the end, profit is the main concern of tech giants. And according to Shoshana Zuboff, surveillance capitalism is economically motivated. When
1: the Google founders were in the dot-com bust uh, emergency in early, in, in 2000, 2001. Um, they couldn't figure out what to commoditize. You know, they had a great search engine. They didn't want to charge people for it. They really couldn't figure out what to convert into uh, into uh, money. Um, and then they hit upon it. And that was the idea that they could claim private human experience as a free source of raw material from which they could extract behavioral data, instantly redefine those data as proprietary, proprietary assets. And then those assets get shipped through ever more complex supply chains into the new factory, which is computational. It's called AI. Uh, Even back then, they called it AI. And what happens in that factory? The data are analyzed and they are fabricated into predictions, behavioral predictions, what people will do. And those predictions are sold. What gave these companies a license to steal our private experience And redefine it as their proprietary assets, because most of what they have, those trillions of data points every day, are not what we knowingly give. It's what they secretly take, right? Because it's not, you know, what I post on my Facebook People aren't posting anymore, but that's a different issue. It's not what I post, do I use exclamation points or bullet points? It's not that I'm walking down Main Street. It's the stoop of my shoulders and the gait of my walk. It's not my face just for a straight up ID. It's the 100 micro expressions in my face that predict my emotions, that predict my behavior. You see what I'm saying? All of this is taken through a surveillance relationship, a one-way mirror that is engineered to keep us in ignorance. So this is something that we're going to be struggling with now as we move to this next phase of taking back control, confronting this license to steal, and essentially withdrawing the social sanction on this fundamentally illegitimate extraction operation.
0: So, as the situation stands right now, our data can fall into the wrong hands and be misused. And highly digitalized societies, like those we see here in the Nordic countries, are at risk. In Finland, the abuse of behavioral data has had some grave personal consequences for journalists being targeted in hate campaigns. But Hanna Aho is among those who are fighting hard to course correct. The big uh, problem is that.
3: Uh, corporate agendas generally do not like serve democratic goals. For journalists, the biggest problem uh, is uh, online harassment and threats. Um, recent uh, years have seen uh, a number of high-profile cases involving journalists being targeted, often uh, far-right uh, groups Uh, fake news platforms, and um, this already is is such a serious level that people avoid certain subjects uh, in fear of of consequences, and that is um, self-censorship and, of course, not okay. Uh, In Finland, these uh, subjects uh, people are avoiding at this point are, for example, uh, religion, abortion, Russia, and our own little speciality is, is wolves. Uh, even your diet is one of these subjects. And um, we have uh, published this advice kit for journalists who are facing these hate campaigns. Um, what they can do, what their colleagues, their uh, employers do. It's really practical and clear, and it's it's been really popular, it's been also internationally sent quite
0: widely. According to Hana Aho, it's necessary to fight for regulation of tech companies on an international battlefield. And this involves lawmaking at a European level, for instance. Otherwise, it's hard to expect that big tech will change. I don't believe that they will want
3: to serve these democratic goals, democracy, but they have to be ruled by law. To do so, for example, uh, deleting, removing illegal content, um, they have responsibility and they have to. When they give the platform, they have to control what's on the platform. Uh, also, when we're talking about hate speech and illegal uh, content, uh, they are of course doing already. Next year is a big, big uh, discussion about this, and that's a good. I uh, think the problem is that um, usually these changed in the law and then after that change in behavior and then after that uh, acts in Facebook, Google, uh, they are quite slow. And it, it might take years to, to change this culture. And um, I don't see any other way if we are talking about governments that uh, or EU that we should just change the
0: laws, the environment they are acting. In Brussels, Magritte Vestea is fighting the battle on behalf of all 27 EU member states. And she is well aware that the clock is ticking.
2: If you think about sort of our economic history, when sort of the steam machine was invented and we began sort of industrializing our world and people moved from uh, from the, the rural areas into the cities. You know, living conditions was, you know, appalling. Children were working. You had people being killed in the, in the factories. It took a long time and a very, very deep fight in order for pe- people to unionize, to have their unions, to gain the strength for democracy, actually to see that this was something that needed to be regulated. And since also technology as we know it today is uh, fundamentally changing how we produce things. It's the same kind of fight, only we have to be so much faster because the the digital world is moving so much faster than what happened when we had the steam machine and electricity and, and all of that. But it's the same kind of fundamental fight about who should have the gains of productivity, what should be the working conditions and what are my rights as an individual in a society where this is the way things are produced.
0: So if it's so urgent, what can be done right now? What can a citizen like me do to protect my data and stand up for my democratic rights as a citizen?
3: It's um, almost impossible for a single person to demand anything from Google or or Facebook or any big uh, gatekeeper company. You can press your own government and demand them To act, and of course we as a people can act if there's a good movement. Go with, be active. We have to be active, and uh, I notice myself that it's so much easier to just skip, block, or think, "Oh, what an idiot!" You know, than do. uh, I don't like what you write. Don't write on my wall. These kind of things or uh, is this really true? Did you check this? It means that we have to be active because those people who are spreading uh, disinformation, they are really active. They really are active. There are machines which spread this disinformation.
2: The thing is that this endeavor really has no label. It's not about socialism. It's not about being conservative. uh, It's not about being liberal. Because we are, we are touching with something very fundamental uh, that we have achieved over decades of decades and decades. And at least in the Scandinavian societies, it is the basic. And on top of that basic, you are a socialist or conservative or a liberal, whatever you are. But, but the basic is formed on a really common understanding of the integrity and the dignity of the individual. And and this is why it it ought to be for everyone to take part. Because it is what is opening access to the market for for every business, big as well as small. It is what allows our democratic debate actually to thrive without being polarized for the wrong reasons. It is what can enable and empower each and every one of us to be in control of uh, how we want to be seen. Uh, What kind of data trace do we want to leave? And I think also part of the the Scandinavian approach is to say there must be a meeting between sort of the systemic, that in our democracy we make the rules, and what we do as individuals. You know, climate change. Uh, We need uh, CO2 uh, taxes. Uh, We need uh, to change our energy grid. We need to, to change from coal into windmills but I also need to sort out my trash, you know, paper and plastic and, and bottles, whatever. So the two things meet, never completely private, never completely just for the big society. And, and I think that is, is also a very good model in what we're doing here. We can never privatize to me to say, oh, I should, I should be aware of every cookie, of every terms and condition, I should read it, then I could do nothing. But I have to do my part. I need to make choices. I need need to be also a, a conscious citizen when I'm online. And then, of course, for the society to do the systemic thing, as we do with legislation that we really want to enforce, because the enforcement, of course, is key to do this. And I think we have a very long and very strong tradition of this approach in the Scandinavian countries.
1: Where we are right now as citizens is we are facing a political crisis. I take Margaret's point that this is about recycling as much as it's about CO2 emissions. But at the same time, you know, individuals withdrawing from these systems creates a harm for individuals because it's limits social participation without fundamentally changing the systems. So we're talking now about an era of collective action. An era of political action. And the first thing that we need to recognize as individuals is that we can no longer sit on the sidelines of democracy. We've had a kind of sweet run. You know, we had the Obama years in my country. And, you know, we we've had a relatively sweet run since the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, we were feeling, you know, very optimistic about democracy and we weren't being very active. Now we have to be active. Every generation is challenged to keep democracy as a viable, growing, and flourishing system because it's the best system ever to have been invented by humanity. So we have to get political. We have to become fighters for democracy. We need the best and the brightest young people in our society not to go to work for AI, not to go to work for surveillance capitalism, but to go to work for Margaret. And all the Margret's, not that there are any others like her, but we need, we need them in our federal governments, in our state governments, in our municipal governance. We need alternative kinds of business models. This is where the best and brightest have to go.
2: It is for us in our democracies to take the decisions that shape our society. It is not for boardrooms. It, it sounds maybe sort of a bit lofty, but... In insisting on living a full life, I think we do a lot to help shape a society where where tech is a a servant and not the other way around. And in that, I also think that we develop a better culture online in not uh, accepting harsh language or uh, hate speech or uh, the degradation of women taking part in debates, all of that that exists out there. So I think that each and every one of us can be part of a, a positive cultural change so that we make the best of technology.
0: The year 2020 turbocharged our digital lives. And there's no sign of this trend stopping. And personally, I have no intention of shying away from technology. Come to think of it, there's one thing that I'm very sure of after listening to Magreta, Shoshana and Hannah. I don't want to live in a society where my data, or anyone else's data for that matter, is misused. As a citizen, it's important for me to understand my rights. But this challenge is far too daunting for any individual to navigate alone. That's why we need our democracies to stand up for our interests and regulate this new frontier of power. Maybe the Nordic countries could take a lead in this struggle— Partially because this region is so digitalized. And partially because of the long-standing traditions of democracy. Check out our website, nordictalks.com, where you can read more about all the people that you meet in this podcast. I'm Afton Halloran. Thanks for listening.